0: continue on. Week two of our series, I Am, and we'll fill in the blank each week as we see uh, what our identity in Christ is. So this is um, this is a series all about Jesus and what it means to be found in him, to be a Christian, uh, and it is powerful. Some of these um, are going to be familiar to you. Some of them might be new, but it's going to hopefully feel a little bit like Christmas morning for you as you unwrap the gifts uh, that God has given, and tonight we are going to be walking through in chapter one, verses three through seven. We're going to talk about uh, the whole passage, which would be verses three through fourteen, but we're going to split it in half and just cover the first few verses tonight. And the theme is um, that I am blessed. I am blessed. Don't you like being blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? If someone tells you, um, "God bless you," and what, what does that what does that mean? If someone yeah, so yeah, there you go. You sneezed, right? Um, if you see a hashtag blessed, what comes to mind, right? There's there's all kinds of different ideas when we think of what it means to be blessed. A few weeks ago uh, when we did some outreach service projects as a church, we went um, to a trailer park community and we we're doing a whole bunch of different things, service projects, of course, um, vary. And for a few of us, we were repairing decks and repairing sidewalks and all kinds of stuff. And so we were just really traveling around trying to figure out who we could help. And um, someone stopped and said, hey, you know, stopped us as we were driving down the road. You know, there's a, there's a trailer over here that has the first few steps that are just all broken to pieces. And um, we said, okay, we'll stop there. And so we just stopped and went and knocked on their door. Of course, they had no idea that we were coming Um, and an older man, maybe in his 70s, answered the door, and I told him who we were and what we wanted to do, that we we would like to repair his steps, which would be just basically rebuilding them. Um, And he said, oh, okay, yeah, but I just don't have the money. And we said, well, that's okay, because it's free. And he looked at me and then kind of looked off into the sky and, and said, why? And I was able to share with him why. And a few minutes later, um, he went back inside and he came out with another roommate who happened to be like a 50, 55 year old man. And he had heard what we were doing and he started asking questions. And he said, why are you guys doing this? By that time, we were already ripping off the old steps and putting new ones on. Um, And we talked for probably an hour uh, about life and about the gospel and uh, about why we would do something just to bless someone with no strings attached other than hoping that they have uh, life in Christ. And, um, and he was just crying. He just saw it before I even explained why he was just crying. Because even in 50 years of life, he realized, man, you, <laughs> you don't have things that happen that are too good to be true. Like there's always something, there's always a catch, right? And, and he was just waiting for us to tell him the here's the catch. And we spent two to three hours with him that morning. Um, as far as I know, there was no catch. You see, that's, that's what it means to be blessed, to be given something without, without a catch. Just given something because the giver has good, pure motivations. And when you grow up, primarily here in America, we love to work our whole lives out of two different ethics. One is a worker's ethic, the other is a debtor's ethic. The worker's ethic tells us that you get what you pay for, and if you want things in life, you have to earn them. Right? Did you go up with your parents telling you that? If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. All you can count on is what you earn. And so we're always upset when we don't get what we feel like we earned in life, right? The other one is the debtor's ethic, which says, well, good things will happen to you. If you want nice things in life, whether it be material possessions or, or whatever it might be, you're going to have a debt that you're going to have to pay back, right? And if you fall behind on paying that back, you're going to have issues. And the blessings, well... They won't feel like blessings when the bank comes a-calling. So ultimately, with that mindset, and most of us have one or both of those, we have to choose, are you going to be a slave to your job, the worker's ethic, because uh, as long as you've got a job and you're working, everything's okay, or the lender, the debtor's ethic. But the Bible says there, there's a different ethic. It's God's way of dealing with us where he just blesses us. And it's not dependent on how good you can be or your performance or what you can do to pay him back. It's just dependent on how good he is and what he has done in our place. How do you view God? Do you view God with a worker's ethic? Meaning, well, you know what? I know God will be good to me as long as I keep up with his commands. As long as I try hard and I make it to church and I do the things that I know he wants me to do, like then I should have some favor in my life. And then you get frustrated when the favor seems to drop off and things happen and maybe there's a tragedy or you lose your job or something doesn't go in line with what you thought because you worked for this, right? You put in your effort with God and he's not keeping up his end of the bargain. Or or do you look at him like a debtor? And you say, okay, I do know that God gave us lots of good stuff and the gospel is really good news, but you better be a really good servant and you better do what he says or someday he might leave you. Someday he might show up at your doorstep, the proverbial doorstep, spiritually and say, you know what, I gave you a chance, but you're just not good enough. You can't keep up with what a Christian should be doing. Or do you wake up in the morning and you just smile because you know spiritually... You can't earn it. You can't work hard enough. You can't be good enough. But God is just good. And life might not look the way you think it should, but God has blessed us not because of our performance, but because of his goodness. You see that's that's what we get to do as Christians. We get gifts and it's a blessing. So Paul, he goes into town in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, and there's a quarter million people in this city, and they are very religious. They have a god named Artemis, now daughter of Zeus and brother to Apollos. Artemis is a god who gives earthly blessings, and so they worked hard to please this god. They they would have idols made, and it was a huge economic... part of of the city, and they would um, serve this God, and they would hope that they would be blessed in in their uh, provision for their family, and their fertility, and a wide variety of other things. They wanted earthly blessings from this goddess. Now, if you look back in Acts chapter 19, it says that Paul came in, he preached the gospel of grace, and that a bunch of the sorcerers, a bunch of the people who um, followed this false god, they were super religious trying to get God's blessing from him, and and they decided they were going to burn all their books and it said there's 50,000 essentially days wages that they burned all of these books about their sorcery and their magic and and it caused a ruckus in the city it changed things But that's what happens when you encounter the gospel of grace and you realize, God's just good. He just blesses me. I can't earn it. I can burn all of my past earnings. I can burn all of my past attempts. I can burn all the days where I thought, yeah, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. He should do what he's supposed to do. They experienced that a little bit in Ephesians. And so we're going to dig in tonight to five things that that we are blessed with in Christ. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you can wake up with a smile on your face. Now, I got to say this, before we jump in to these verses, you're going to see several key words and you're going to see uh, one big theme. The one I have to mention is this, that verses 3 through 14, that's one passage, in the original Greek was one sentence. So for those of you school teachers or English majors this might drive you nuts. It is a power-packed, awesome, big one long sentence and it was 202 words. 202 words. And all through this you're going to see several themes. You're going to see the word blessed, right? Four times and three in the first Uh, verse that we cover. You're going to see the word in him. Remember, over 40 times in in the six chapters of Ephesians, you will see in him, in Christ, in his beloved. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You're going to see God refer to himself in these 11 verses in the Trinity. It starts, we're talking about the Father. In the middle verses, you're going to see him talk about jesus the son and the work of the cross and it's going to end with the spirit and so don't lose that as you're walking through this but it's um it's going to be good let's go ahead and jump in verse three we'll walk through all these verses and then go a little bit slow blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us in christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Remember last week I told you the way that Ephesians really plays into the whole Bible is that it talks about how God's plan, the mystery of the gospel, is to reconcile all of humanity, everything back to God. Glory. All right. Well, let's jump in. The first four verses, verses three through seven, we're going to talk about how we are blessed. Verse three Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First thing we see, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. So lots of religions offer lots of. Um, spirituality, but God's saying, if there's anything that is spiritually good in the whole world, it's ultimately going to come from God, the Father, the true God, right? There's there's all kinds of experiences people can have with different religions that that are spiritual, but, but there's not necessarily good in them. They might be deceived, they might be disillusioned that this is good, but they're ultimately not of God, unless they are, of course, of God. That's only through Jesus. So he says, blessed be the God and father. Three times in this verse, he says the word bless or blessed or blessing. Now the first part, it says, blessed be the God and the father. This word, this is kind of the the root word for where we get blessing. It means praiseworthy. So Paul, he's saying, praise be to God. Like, you think, how can God be blessed? And what it means is, not that we can offer God something he can't otherwise have, but it means God's just praiseworthy. He's awesome. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So again, in Christ, in Christ, as we walk through this series, underline in your Bible, if you're an underliner. Underline in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Blessed, blessed, blessed. That's the context of everything. When you go back and read this book and you want to know, hey, I remember we walked through this series. How can I remember like the main, main, main stuff? You underline those words and it'll bring it all back to you. Who has blessed us in Christ. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? Here, it means that we have benefits in Christ. Now, the Greek word actually means supernatural benefits. So to be blessed in Christ means that you get things that you couldn't otherwise have. Your friends can't give them to you. Your mama can't give them to you. Your daddy can't give them to you. Nobody can give you these things like God can. With every, every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. So remember, way back in Genesis chapter 1, after God created man and woman, it says that he Blessed them; they couldn't earn it. They they couldn't do enough to um, to to show that they are good enough. God is a good God who blesses. He gives supernatural benefits to us. He just blesses us. And you say, "Well, ah, I know. I hear this that, that that we have all these spiritual blessings, and not just all of them, every spiritual blessing in Christ. But I don't always feel that way. I don't feel spiritually blessed." Like sometimes I feel spiritually lame. I feel spiritually dead. I feel like, man, I'm just coming here to, to get a breath of life. So I can just make it through the end of the week. Remember, this isn't about how you feel. This is about what God says and what God has done. That changes everything. If if you walk through the Christian life, letting your emotions be Lord, then then you're forfeiting this stuff and experience. So you might know things to be theologically true, but, but you've got to come to the word of God and say, this is going to tell me how I'm going to feel today. It's going to tell me what I know and what I believe. I'm not coming saying, God, give me, give me something fresh. Give me something good. No, I'm coming and I'm bowing down. I'm submitting to it because it's over me. I'm not over it. You don't always feel spiritually blessed, but let me, let me say this. I think you will find this to be true. In your relationships and life, we often see what we look for. Like, for example, you ever been dating someone and you thought it was going pretty well, and then you went and talked to one of your friends, and you're like, hey, I don't want to say this to you, but, but you know, like your boyfriend, he kind of smells. He's just kind of weird. You're like, I, I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that. But then now you're looking for it. So next time you see him, you're thinking, oh my oh my, oh my, like, and then you say a few hours later, gosh, he, he kind of smells, and they're like, he, he does smell, it's really bad, I didn't notice it before, but you're looking for it, and so you see it, or maybe, um, you got a coworker who, um, who, who is, is pretty quiet, but someone says, hey, you know, man, They're employee of the month this month because they're always going above and beyond. You're like, well, I haven't even noticed them. And then you look for it and you realize, wow, they show up before everyone. They leave after everyone. They come and serve everyone after they finished what they're doing. Like they're just really good. And in the same way, you get to choose every single day what your disposition will be towards life. Life. So you can wake up and you can choose to think and dwell on the things that you don't have, or you can think and dwell on the things that you do have in Christ. And I see so many Christians who don't experience the spiritual blessings, not because they're not available, but because we don't want to focus on them. Because in America, we love goal setting. Americans love the gap, the distance between where we are now and where we could be. Your parents will tell you from an early age, you've got to set goals, you've got to go somewhere in life, you've got to accomplish stuff, and we spend the rest of our lives trying to bridge the gap between where we are and where we could be. So when we wake up in the morning, we hit and pound the pavement to try to get to where we want to go. Our focus is ultimately on what I don't have. I got to get better at relationships. I want a relationship. Okay, I got to get healthy. Okay, so I'm going to work on that. I got to do better at school. Okay, so I'm going to put in the work. And it's always the gap that tends to motivate us, doesn't it? And and God's saying, "You, you need to realize you can't come to me with that mindset and expect to experience these spiritual blessings. They can still be on the table. They are on the table. But you flip it upside down. When you come to Christ, you you realize, I wake up daily, I get to choose, my disposition is not what I am lacking in Christ, not what I need to go do more of, I got to be a better Christian, I got to do this, but it's, it's just simply rest in what you already have, what you can't earn. That's a blessing. You start looking for it and you'll start seeing, God, you have blessed me, not just with earthly stuff, right? But spiritual blessings, you meditate on forgiveness, you meditate on grace, you meditate on mercy, you meditate on the fact that you have a new identity, you're a new creation, your home is in heaven, you meditate on the fact you've got an inheritance, you meditate on all of these gospel truths, and you will start to be overwhelmed by what you have in Christ. You say, what? What are these heavenly b- blessings? What are, the, what are these, these spiritual blessings in heavenly places? Now, some of your translations might say here at the end of this verse, they might just translate it from God because the blessing is not just spiritual enrichment. That's not just the spiritual blessing we're talking about. It's God himself, right? God is the blessing. God's the blessing. And where is the blessing? It says that the blessing is in the heavenly places. Now, here's the thing. Paul's sitting in prison, right? He's on house arrest, writing this letter. And he's saying, I got everything. I got everything I need. Not when I die, things will be so much better. But I get it right now. You see, that's the beauty of eternal life. Eternal life doesn't start the second you die. Eternal life starts the second you place your faith in Jesus. Because life is in Jesus. And so it's kind of like at Christmas when you get that um, sweater from your grandma that's two sizes too big and you have this tension in your soul because you're like, oh, gosh, I'm kind of disappointed because I don't get to enjoy it now. But I'm kind of pumped because in like two years I'll find this in my closet and be like, oh, wow, (laughs) it fits now. It's good. Hopefully you don't gain two sizes in two months. But anyway, you, you see that's the tension. With God, he says, no, you can have your cake and eat it too. When you die, it's going to be amazing if you're in Christ. Heaven is going to be amazing. But when Jesus prays, remember when when the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray, he says, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. He prays that the things in heaven would be on earth. So much of our lives as believers is taking what is in heaven, the things of God, and being able to live them out in the kingdom that is of God here on earth, a spiritual reality and a physical earth. This is why we forgive people even when (laughs) it doesn't seem to warrant that they deserve forgiveness. This is why we show mercy, we show grace, we love people. This is why we go out of our way, we adopt kids who need adopted. This is why we love people. We do these things because we're bringing heaven to earth because we have heavenly blessings even while we're walking on earth. You won't experience the fullness of them until, of course, you're in heaven. But you can have a little taste of heaven because you're in Christ right now, not just when you die. It's kind of like when, um, when you get married, right? I remember when Tara and I first got married, we started to look at each other's debts. That's always a fun conversation. What kind of student loan issues do you have? And they lay it out for you, and you lay it out for them, or you got credit card debt, or you got something. And you know the second you say, I do, and you sign those papers, you get all their debt. And we've got to understand that with God, he describes our relationship with him like a marriage. And he says that the church is his bride. And when you place your faith in Jesus, you get all that comes along with Jesus. You stand with him in his place because he ultimately stood in your place on the cross. And so you get all that comes with him and God is rich. And that's good news. There's a fly flying around. You'd think it's the middle of summer. Look at that. Sorry, buddy. It's going to get cold soon. You don't need to. Um, you don't need to mix Jesus with anything else. The Roman Empire. You know what they would do when they would conquer different nations? They practiced what some would call syncretism, meaning they they would take the best parts of the different religions of the peoples that they would conquer, and they would mix it all into one pot. And say, let's just put it all together, and hopefully this is going to be good. So, with with the Greeks, we're going to take some of their philosophy, and, and with um, the the Jews, maybe we're going to take a little bit of, of their beliefs, and we're going to mix it all together. Some of us try to do that with Jesus. We say, yeah, I know I have every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we say, but but I I just need a little self help book. Uh, I just need I just need to explore some some mysticism. I just need um, Jesus plus Jesus plus Jesus plus, and God saying no you have every spiritual blessing in Christ look no further verse 4 and the beginning of 5 he says even as he oh, this is going to be fun chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us second thing we're blessed with we're blessed because he chose us he chose us. you ever desired to be chosen? I mean, what was it like for you when you were a kid, you're at recess? Did you hate recess? Because if you ever had to split into teams, like you thought, "I'm probably not going to get picked. Was that you? No, you guys all got picked first, didn't you? Look at that. No insecurities. What about like junior high dances? did Were you a wallflower? Did did you hate going to a dance? Not because you didn't want to dance. You wanted to dance. You just didn't know if anyone would pick you to dance with them. Or homecoming. Or sporting teams, if you went to a bigger school. Did you shy away from things that that, um, you knew you might not get chosen? You might not get picked. And that might devastate you. We all want to be wanted, right? It's like the old... (laughs) The old saying when a husband and wife fights about doing the dishes or something, it's not just that we serve each other, it's that we want to serve each other. I don't want you to just do the dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes, right? You ever had that discussion? Because we don't want people to have to settle for us. We want people to want us for us. You see, that's the beauty of free will, right? That, that love has its power and choice, that we're not robots. We, we don't have to love because we have no other options. We choose to love, and that's what makes it special. But on the flip side, that's what makes it special with God choosing us. That he didn't have to, but he does. That, that we're not the wallflower at the dance that, that he chooses, us, that, that he loves us. Some of us are insecure, though. In that. It's like last night, Silas, um, he said... He said he was going to make me something. I said, okay. Yeah. And so um, he got a piece of paper. He started cutting out all kinds of stuff, different bookmarks. He cut out like four bookmarks, and he was so excited. I could tell, like he was pumped to give me these little bookmarks. He kind of colored them, and he said he was going to give me these bookmarks. And Tara, before I was about to leave the house, she said, you better go get Cy and look at those bookmarks he made you because he's really proud of them. And I was like, all right, buddy. So he's downstairs. I said, Silas, come up, bud. Is there anything you want to show me? And he went over to the table and he said, here's the bookmarks. There's two for you and two for mom and you can put them in your Bible. And he was so proud, so excited about them. And I got down and I, I got on my knees and I said, buddy, you're showing me love. I like, guess it's from your heart and you're being generous with your stuff. You're giving this to me. I said, that's that's like God. Isn't that awesome? And he, being my son, said, "But but but I... I just really wanted to get—I just really wanted to get rid of that piece of paper, and so I just cut those bookmarks out because I just really, really wanted to get rid of that piece of paper. And then he skedaddled off, and that was it. And I just looked at Tara, and I said, "He's—he's he's my boy, because he's rascally." But do you feel that way with God? Like, yeah, it says He chose me, but like, did He really choose me? Does He really want me? Does he want me when I just look decent? Or what happens when I fail and I look really bad? We're scared that he's going to leave us. Sometimes. Now, this is a huge discussion. One that we don't have time for. Um, tonight, but we hope to dig in deeper as you're going to see the words chose and predestination and foreknew um, several times in the book of Ephesians. If you want to see it a lot more, look in Romans. Ephesians in some ways is a little Romans, um, but this idea that, that God chose us and he predestined us, it has huge theological implications. Now, some of you know the argument, the discussion in-house. This is a family uh, discussion, so this isn't, well, you're Christian or you're not Christian, depending on where you end up, But but there's two lines of thinking. There's what we call Calvinism, and so John Calvin in the 1500s, he had some thoughts, and some later scholars developed them into these different five points that all revolve around God's sovereignty and and God predestining us, right? Um, And then another guy, Jacob Arminius, uh, who who was born a little bit after um, Calvin, he had um, five counterpoints, and they kind of went back and forth, and it turns into a big thing. And so this Calvinism versus Arminianism kind of debate is, it takes over a bunch of churches. It all revolves around our relationship with God and whether God initiates and is responsible for the relationship or is mankind responsible for the relationship. So did God choose us or do we choose God? Is it all about his grace or our faith? And... I don't have all the answers, so I'm not going to tell you. Well, this is exactly how it is. But I will tell you, um, it says that he chose us, which means that he gave us preferred selection. So he preferred us and he selected us. And it says that he predestined us, which means before time began, he said, this is how it's going to be. And, And some people who are on the arminianism side where they say no 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 no, that sounds like we're a bunch of robots that can't work why do we even make decisions right if everything was predestined if everything happened before we ever had a choice in it then that doesn't leave room for free will well here's here's what we got to understand there's again in-house discussions like this where you've got to make sure regardless of your background regardless of your beliefs that you don't try to explain away some Bible verses in order to affirm other Bible verses. It's all God's Word, and it all works together the way He wants it to, and it's a little reminder for each one of us, the reason the discussion's gone on for at least 500 years is because we can't figure it out, and there's good biblical evidence for both sides of the party. We have to remember that as Christians, we're going to have to live with a tension in our minds that, well, this sounds true, but this other thing sounds true, and it doesn't make it super clear how they work together but you got to trust it works together because God's God and we're not God. And ultimately, you just read this and you say, "Okay, I don't know what it means ultimately to be predestined, but it sounds like he knew who he was going to choose and he chose some of us and he just did it because he's God." Ultimately, what you know when you read this is that God is bigger than time. He's more um he, he's he's sovereign and he knows all things. So it's not like God created us and was like, well, I don't know how this is going to turn out. No, he, he knew how everything would turn out. He's outside of time. You and I live in a time continuum, right? So we talk about past, present, future, and that's how we understand where we are in this whole time continuum. God is sitting outside of the whole thing saying, I, I can insert myself into the time continuum. I can look from the outside. I can do whatever I want, but he knows all things. So, with that being said, the gist of it is ultimately, the Calvinist would say, God chooses us, so he predestined us, he chose us. The Arminius would say, we choose God. But the Bible, I think, makes it pretty clear that both sides are right. Ultimately, God first chooses us, and then by faith, we choose him. You got to be careful. I just feel like this is a, a good side note. If you went to Bible school or seminary or something along those lines, you would take, initially, one of your first classes would be hermeneutics, which means the interpretation of Scripture. How do you know what that book says? That's, all, that's the big idea. And you're going to see two ways of interpreting Scripture. One of them, good. One of them, bad. Eisegesis versus exegesis. Exegesis, good. Eisegesis, not so good. Here's, here's what they mean. When you look at the Bible and you read a verse, if you want to interpret it, understand it exegetically, as we would say, you're letting the verse speak for itself. So it's telling you what it means. So if you're going to do that with this, you'd say, um, uh, it says he predestined us. He chose us. Forget what I think about God. I'm just going to believe that. I'm going to look. I'm going to say, this is what it means. Okay, I'm going to roll with that. Eisegesis is when you take your agenda, your life experience, your background, what you hope it says, what you want it to say, any agenda you might have, and put it on that and say, well, I don't want it to mean that we don't have any kind of choice in our own salvation. So I'm just going to explain it away to mean something else. Sometimes the more mature believers have more temptation towards an improper interpretation of scripture because you're grown up in the church, right? In some ways, shape or form, even if you came to faith as an adult and you start learning what your pastor's telling you, you start learning what your local church or maybe denomination interprets scripture as and then you see some verses and you're like, eh, that doesn't line up with what I've been taught. It's all the word of God. You can't explain away some to exalt others. I can tell you guys are pumped by this conversation. When it comes to um, this idea of predestination, you can debate it or you can celebrate it. And I wonder the stories, even for those of you sitting here tonight, where would you be right now if God didn't save you? What would your life look like if you just played it out without Jesus? Would you be living here? Would, Would you be married to who you're married to? Would you be in jail? Would you be free? What would be changed? You can wonder, how does this all work? Does God choose us? Do we choose? It? And you don't know every detail, but you can look at your own story and say, you know what? It looked like I was destined for hell. It looked like, based on rational thinking, I had no hope. It looked like maybe some people should or did give up on me. But God pulled me out of that. He reached down and said, I got my hand on you. I'm saving you. If that's you, he's saying, I I chose you. I chose you. Do you fear God might like you, but he doesn't love you? That that he chose you, but kind of like, well, you were plan B for him. Because God's word makes it clear. He knew how this was going to play out. He knows every flaw. He knows every wrong turn you were ever going to make. And he says, before it all started, I chose you. And I'm not going to unchoose you. The gifts of God are irrevocable, his word says. And there's incredible peace in that. You don't have to fear that he's going to leave you. You're not on the playground. Again, this is not the proverbial spiritual playground where you got to wonder, does God really, really love me? Yeah, he says, I really, really love you. I choose you. feels good and secure to be chosen. Everyone in your life might reject you. There's no guarantee anyone on earth is going to choose you. But God's saying, I do. And I don't regret it. In verse 5, he continues on. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The third thing we see is that we are blessed with adoption. We are blessed with adoption. Tonight, 40% of kids are going to go to sleep without a father in this country. For the first time in our nation's history, as far as we know, Over 50% of children born to women 30 years of age or younger are born out of wedlock. And they might know, hey, there's obviously a dad out there, but I don't know him. In many cases, they might not even meet him. Adoption's a big deal. You see, on earth, you're going to join a family, if you join a family, one of two ways, either by natural birth, right, you are born into the family, or you get adopted into the family. Let me just ask you, you can answer this. Is it better to be born into a family or is it better to be adopted? And why? is not really a trick question. If you're adopted you are chosen, not born of a husband's will. Yeah. Okay, so adoption is a, a distinct choice. That's that's awesome, right? For sure. Anybody else? Is it better to be born into a family or adopted into a family? Yeah, so there might be thankfulness. For sure. What about being born into a family? What's good about that? Anything? All you guys wish you were adopted? I'm going to talk to your mom and dad. I'm going to ask your parents. You know your father, you know your father right? There's rights, right? There's, there's, there's a, a sense of intimacy when you know that that's my blood, right? That's, that's my flesh and blood. See, they're both beautiful in their own way, right? Here's what's even more beautiful. On earth, you can only be one or the other. In heaven and in the kingdom of God, you are both. In John 3, it says that we are born again spiritually. So you are spiritually in Christ, born again into his family. But then all throughout the New Testament, it says that we are also adopted. And the beauty of this is that you simultaneously, if you are a Christian... You get the inheritance, you get the birthrights, you get, you get the intimacy that comes with knowing, I'm born into the family of God. And yet at the same time, you get the unmerited favor, the grace of God knowing that you were adopted, you were far away, he didn't have to do this, but he says, I'm choosing you and I'm, bring, I'm bringing you into this. And you get both of those worlds. And it's beautiful, in Christ, you get both. You ever wondered to yourself, do I even belong here? Maybe it was at a church. Maybe it was in your own family, a job. You just felt out of place. I think a lot of us feel that way sometimes. You ever, you ever see maybe even just like a clip on Facebook or a YouTube video or whatever of, um, of a child learning that he's going to be adopted and like embracing the, the, the mom or the dad? And, and just the excitement of it. I remember one time on vacation, um, we, we were hiking in the woods in this beautiful area. And um, there was two little kids. You could tell they were probably siblings. And their, their parents said, we signed the papers today. And there was a photographer. And they were walking up and down taking these pictures. And they just were so excited. There was so much joy. They're like, today was the day. Picture the insecurity thinking, well, okay, I don't know if I'll be adopted. But then people say, well, through foster care or whatever, like, well, we're trying to make it official. We're trying to, and then the day comes where it's official and you don't have to wonder anymore. And you need to know when the tomb was empty, God signed those adoption papers saying anyone who comes to my son, he is firstborn here. He is resurrected from the dead. If you come to him, you are officially mine. And nothing can change that. I don't know what your family life was like growing up. Maybe you didn't have much of a family. Maybe uh, you just had one parent. Maybe you wished that you were in a different family. You see, the Bible speaks of God as a father. In the Old Testament, he, He says 14 times that God is a father. The Old Testament's big, though. 14 times. None of those times are very personal. It's always the father of a nation. So the father of Israel. But over 60 times alone in the New Testament, Jesus speaks about our relationship with God as God the Father. When you speak to the Father, when, when you talk to Abba, Father, and it redefines how we view God. When when you come to God, he's not a landlord, he's not just a judge, he is a father. And when you come to church, you have a new family. And although we're brothers and sisters and you know sometimes we can be jacked up, we are in the same family. It redefines how you understand your involvement in the local church because it's not about you coming and getting fed. It's about you coming and being a part of your family. It's it's not like you missing a random event. It's like you not coming to Thanksgiving. People feel a void. They say we miss you, we want you, we love you. It's not about coming for your religious duty and checking it off the box, saying, checking the box saying I came to church this week. But but it's about coming and asking and, and uh, brothers and sisters, like I, I want to know you, I want to serve you, I want to be with you. We are family. Sometimes you got to break through this religious uh, religious barrier that that some of us. Just think and t- this is this is what church is all about. Sometimes it's awkward to even go meet someone because you're like, eh, they're probably going to judge me. So you come in and out and you hear the sermons and you sing a few songs, but you leave. But you don't ever talk to anyone. You don't ever get to know anyone. Like, is that what a family is about? I was doing some premarital counseling one time. Didn't know the couple at all, really. Um, had seen them in the church. But I, didn't, I just didn't know him, and I sat down, and as we were talking, um, probably an hour into the conversation, after it being pretty formal, I just I just looked at the girl, and I could tell she had some insecurities, and going into marriage, I knew man, this could be, this could be really rough for her, and I just looked her in the eyes, and I said, am forget the pastor title, like I'm just looking at you as a sister right now. God has a different plan for you, and he he wants to heal you, and he wants to and she started crying, and and there was just a different connection, and for the rest of the time that we were together, we broke through the clergy, laity barrier, and we realized we're just a family. We're in this together. What steps do you need to take? Maybe you need to just stay after a little bit tonight and just go meet someone that you don't know. They're not strangers, they're just unmet family members. And if you know there's someone across the country that you found online through some kind of heritage site, ancestry.whatever, and you think, wow, if they're out there, it's going to kill me not to know them. You should feel something similar in your local church. Verses 6 and 7. He says, To the praise of His glorious grace. It's all about God. It's all about His grace. With which He has blessed us in the beloved. So, in Him, in Christ, in the beloved. It's all about what we have in Jesus. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. Number four, we are blessed with redemption. We are blessed with redemption. The word redemption in the Greek means to be set free, to be liberated, to be delivered. We talk in our culture about addiction. We know there's bondage and addiction. Now in the Bible, it talks about redemption because we we use the words slavery. And the Bible says that you are a slave to sin and that when you get saved that you become a slave to Christ. So you're always a slave to something, either your own flesh and blood, your own desires, or God. Slavery is only a bad thing if the kingdom you're in is a bad kingdom. Slavery in a good kingdom is a beautiful thing, and slavery in a good kingdom means freedom. And so um, God says that we are redeemed, we are delivered, we are set free. Now what makes us set, th- set free? It says, through his blood. Why blood? You see, in the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system was based on blood. The Jews understood that life comes in the blood. They would call it the life blood. So that's why your sins were atoned for by animals' blood. But it was always temporary. It was never permanent, right? They had the Day of Atonement every year where they would sacrifice one goat, and then they would let the other one go free. The scapegoat is what they called it, right? And it was all about the blood. Now, Let's talk about, let's go way back. And we just got a few minutes to cover a decent chunk here. And so we'll make this quick. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, that's where we see redemption really in, in its beginning stages. Remember the Israelites, they got themselves in trouble, right? They were slaves where? Egypt. 400 years. They're slaves. They, they're in bondage. And so then God says, I'm going to send Moses, set my people free. You guys know the story. And then he, he sends 10 plagues and it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened on his own, but then it also says that God hardened his heart, right? And he had this struggle and before you know it, these ten plagues are over and God has what we call the Passover. You remember what happened in the Passover? That, that God said, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to take a go. I want you to have a spotless lamb and here's what you're going to do. You're going to slaughter it and you're going to do some things with boiling the meat and all that, but he said, you're going to put the blood on the door. So in faith, They understood in the middle of the night, there is going to be death sweeping through. It's going to sweep through. But if you have faith in the blood of the spotless lamb, it's going to pass over your house. And in the morning, so much death. But for those who had the blood, they were free. That was a really good story. Bad news. They weren't free forever. They found themselves enslaved at various points all throughout history. They had issues. But isn't it amazing when you open up the New Testament and you're reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you say, oh, John the Baptist, hey, buddy, you're kind of weird. But what did you say again? You said, behold, here comes the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And you see Paul telling the Corinthians that Christ, the Passover lamb, has died for us. And you say, this is awesome. This is redemption. This is different than an animal dying. This is the God of the universe. He's holy. He's perfect. And he redeems us. He delivers us. He sets us free because we were slaves to sin. And Paul says, now, like you're going to have struggles in your earthly body, in your flesh. It's going to be tormenting you to some degree, right? Because it's when God's holy kingdom collides with this broken kingdom. And you're the link between the two. And so you have to have your flesh and bone. You're going to have earthly desires. But you walk in a new kingdom kingdom and you choose that kingdom daily. And it's a kingdom where you have victory over sin, not just the consequences of your sin, but the power of your present sin. And ultimately you won't be in the presence of any sin when you're in heaven. There'll be no sin. What are you a slave to right now? Are you a slave to Christ? Are you a slave to sexual immorality? Lust? Porn? Your thought life? Money? Fame? What do you want? What are you a slave to? What's pulling you along? What has its grip on your heart? Addiction? Drugs? Alcohol? Jealousy? Pride? Maybe that's your drug of choice. What are you a slave to? Sometimes I know that it feels like you won't ever see victory in some areas of life. But you can wake up daily focusing on your bondage or you can focus on your bondage breaker. And you're never going to find much progress when you're just focused on the bondage. But when you remind yourself of the gospel, that Jesus isn't just stringing you along saying, well, once we get to heaven, that's when it's going to be great. But he's saying, no, no. I know you're still in torment right now, but when I died, my blood was powerful enough, it is powerful enough to set you free from the sins that still torment you. Not just the consequences. Well, I know I'm going to heaven, but it's going to be horrible until I get there. No, he can give you victory. We need more people in the church experiencing the victory through his blood. The power is not Please listen to me, church. The power power over your sin is not in your self-will or discipline. It is in his blood. And you've got to understand that everything you need for victory today took place 2,000 years ago on a cross. It was good then, and it's good today. And it doesn't change. Last but not least, Verse 7b, this is the fifth blessing that we see. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Number five, you are blessed with forgiveness. You're blessed with forgiveness. Now, forgiveness in the Greek is the legal term. It means to remove guilt. It means to be pardoned. What do you regret the most about your life? If there was an, a biography written about your life until this point, would you be able to make it through without crying? Could you read that? Could you watch that? Without feeling guilt? We need forgiveness. We talk about this so cliche in the church because we know this is what it's all about, right? Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And yet so many of us have that knowledge, but we have not experienced the removal of our guilt. Theologically, it's done. Experientially, how many of us walk around guilt-free? Maybe you're still on the path of rebellion right now. Can I... Can I show you guys something? I want to get you out of here in a couple minutes. This is not a, um, this is probably not a Sunday morning illustration, but it's a Wednesday night illustration, if you know what I mean. I um, went to the family reunion that we had this past Sunday. Hopefully, if you were there, you had fun. If not, don't tell me. (laughs) S'mores were great. Good, good, good. Um, and I got home. Of course, I was at the church at 6 o'clock that morning. You got all those services and everything's great. I, I love my job. I love that I get to tell people about Jesus. And But I'm an introvert, and I get emotionally exhausted talking to like 1.5 people. It just doesn't take much. And so if I've got a long day of being around people, I come home and I just, I'm just out of it and it was probably eight thirty, and I got on Facebook and uh, a kid that I had ministered to in the past um, who had come and I'd, I talked to him about Jesus. I'd walked with him. I had financially helped him. Um, even when he didn't live here anymore, I knew he had a hard life, a rough life. I knew there was all kinds of bond, all kinds of bondage in his life. And so even from a distance, I'd been kind of walking with him and discipling him every now and then on, uh, on Facebook messenger would pop up. Uh, hey, what's up? Hey, what's up? And so I'd talk to him real brief. Um, But he he sent me a message as I was sitting there. It popped up and it said, Hey Ryan, I need drugs right now. Can you get me drugs? Real quick, within just a couple seconds, uh, the next one was, You blank and blank pastor, give me my drugs. Me and my mom need drugs. And and then before I knew it, um, without even me responding, he jumped on my Facebook wall and clicked on the first thing that he saw, which was a post that someone had tagged me in um, about giving him some football tickets or something a couple days earlier. And so this is someone in the church that, that he doesn't know, but he just, you know, sees that and he clicks on it and he writes under there, on their wall, on their post, Pastor Ryan's been selling drugs again. Pastor Ryan sold me and my mom Coke. Just comment after comment, just going through and doing this now, I don't know how you would feel in that moment. I don't know how many reputations <laughs> you, you think that one guy would have. But you got, you got one. It doesn't matter who sees that, whether it be my mama or whether it be a church member. It doesn't matter. You got one reputation in 2017. People know, they can thrash it any way they want. Especially with social media, we got more options than ever. As he was messaging me, he said, he said that he just shot up um, heroin beneath his kneecap while his mama held his hand. And he was obviously broken. And so I was trying to delete these comments that were public. We had a hard time. It was taking time after time. I had to call up the other people um, for whatever reason. Um, it just We were having a hard time deleting them. And, and I found myself even ticked off at him. Recognizing, dude, what are you doing? Knock it off. I found myself empathizing with him. Because if you're around people with addiction, you know you know the power of the enemy. I um, for a second there I lost my sense of justice because it was overpowered by my sense of empathy. And you might say, well, that's, that sounds good, right? That's what we often do when it comes to sin and how we handle forgiveness. We are ticked at someone. We say, someone needs to pay the price. You, there's consequences for your action, but then you start to get sentimental. You start to feel for people a little bit. and You pull back and often we'll end up sweeping things under the rug, all in the name of empathy and sympathy. And this is maybe sentimental, but it's not holy. And you've got to understand that God, we, we, would, we could say, well, God could have opened up the heavens and said, you know what, y'all are a bunch of sinners. I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to go on with life. I feel for you guys. Looks like things are going horrible for you. But God, being holy and, and empathetic, but perfectly just at the same time, said, someone's got to pay the price, even though my heart is broken for you. But someone still has to pay the price. And so God, in his amazing empathy, in his amazing grace, says, I'm going to become one of you. I'm going to walk in your shoes. You can't tell me that I can't relate to you anymore. You can't tell me. Well, God, you just don't understand. Well, God, you're far away. No, I'm coming to you. And I'm not going to sweep your junk under the rug but I'm calling it to the carpet and I'm going to walk in your place in your path of pain without any of the sin and I'm going to take your place and I'm going to die for you and on the cross is a perfect collision of God's grace and God's justice where he died in our place and he said, I'm not forgiving you by just ignoring your sin. I'm forgiving you because someone pays the price and I'm choosing myself. That's a forgiveness that means more than any other forgiveness you'll ever hear or experience. What if God ignored your sin? That wouldn't be a God worth following. What if God made you pay the price for your sin? Well, that would be hell. But a God who says, my empathy And my justice collide. For you, and as far as the east is from the west, your sins are from you. I remember them no more. Is a God who knows about forgiveness. You don't have to continue to pay the price for your own sin. You're not getting anywhere by feeling guilty about the things you've done. Christ wants to remove that guilt legally, experientially. He wants you to walk in holiness. He predestined you for that. But it's based on what he's done for us in our place. That's what you get in Christ. Let's pray.